0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning, you'll see, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And actually, we're going to read from chapter 9 and even chapter 10 this morning. So we continue in a series through 1 and 2 Samuel throughout most of this school year. With these narrative passages, it's really hard to not have unwieldy passages to read because you need to get a sense of what's being said in the text. And so this morning, you'll see it's rather long, rather long text. And so it's printed for you in your worship folder. If you want to follow along along in your Bible, you're welcome to, but otherwise you can look at it there. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. So let's read together uh, this particular scene in 1 Samuel 8 and then just a few verses from chapter 9 and 10 just to round out the story. Beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah they were judges in Beersheba and yet his sons did not walk in the way in his ways but turned aside after gain and they took bribes and perverted justice then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him behold you are old (laughs) it's funny isn't it like listen dude listen dude you're old it's time to put you out the pasture and your sons do not walk in your ways Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing also to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now pay attention to the things that get repeated here. It's really important. These are the ways. Verse 11, he will take. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, (laughs) no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Chapter 9 There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Verse 2 He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller. Than any of the people. And then from chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. He said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands. And Samuel said To all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! This is the word of the Lord. Say with me, would you? Oh, it's not up there. Do you know it by heart? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. It's a sobering passage. Uh, and it's a treacherous road that I take this morning because people feel very strongly about these things. I get to work with pastors and specifically church planters all over the state of Florida uh, beyond my, my responsibilities here at Redeemer. And I love that work. And I can tell you uh, that there are so many churches that are struggling and so many pastors and particularly so many planters who are on the verge uh, of giving into what's being called the Great Resignation, as it applies even to pastoral ministry. It's a thing for pastors, too. Just this week, I heard of three pastors that are leaving their churches. And I talk with a lot of these guys, uh, and they are burnt out, and they are profoundly discouraged, and they're struggling to not just give up. And they point, a lot of them, to 2020 and 2021, as you might imagine, but what's interesting as you talk with them is they talk about all of having, especially can you imagine planning a church like in 2018, 19, 20, and then having to go through 2020 and 2021? But as they talk about that experience, what is almost unanimous that they say to me is that it was not COVID, it was the political turmoil and the racial tensions surrounding the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and then the polarization that that they experienced over closures and masks and all of these things, and then, of course, the 2020 election. And what they tell me is, is that those realities, those things, trying to navigate all of that stuff with their people was far more damaging to their church than even the pandemic was. It was a cause of so much, much greater stress and division. And I think, given that, you would think, you know, it's just been surprising to me to hear that from so many of them. And I think we ought to ask the question, why? I mean, it's beyond obvious that political polarization wreaking havoc in our society is is a dangerous thing, but a real thing. The big sort is a real thing. Floridians know that most of all. First-hand experience. Families are being torn in two over political loyalties. NPR ran a story in October 2020 entitled Dude, I'm Done, chronicling how friends were in large numbers dumping one another over their support of one presidential candidate or another in the election of that year. The National Institute of Health has done research, and you can see it online showing how it's even affecting our physical and emotional health. And it's affecting the church too. And that's what makes me so sad. And it's—I think—we need to ask this question: What are the spiritual dynamics that are at work and behind all of this? I think that's an important question to answer. Not because I have an agenda, but because that's what this text is really about. It's a great text to do that with. The theme of this material, as we've been seeing, you'll see it's on the screen behind me, in First and Second Samuel, is really about God's presence with His people. God with His people. It's not really about David and the kingdom and all that. It really is about how God intends to be with his people. Now, the king has an important part in that, but don't miss the larger picture. God with his people, God's presence, typified by the ark. So in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, the people rejected God, and they replaced him with the ark itself. That's what we saw there. They chose religious superstition over personal communion and relationship with God himself. It was Religious idolatry that got the best of them. But here in chapter 8, the people again reject God. This time they sought to replace him not with some talisman, but with a king, which was its own kind of talisman. Give us a king, they said. It was political idolatry, which is the theme of this text. That's what this text here, chapters 8, 9, and 10, are really about. And we have to ask a number of questions as we make our way through it. First, why did they have no king? Why, to this point, did Israel exist without a king? And then secondly, I think we have to ask, why Saul, as the first king, you know, why did God choose Saul what is what's the lesson there of Saul as the first king of Israel and then obviously both of those questions as we seek to answer them we're going to point us to the redeeming grace of the true king you'll see those are the three points in the outline that I've given you that there was no king and then there was the first king but ultimately we're to see the true king and we'll see the the true import of this text okay so let's talk about each of those as we go through it together first At this point, Israel had no king. So if that is true, then what was wrong with their demand for a king? Why had God not given them a king? Let's ask that question first. Now, if you look there, it is clear from the text that their demand for a king, at least in God's uh, understanding of it, was a rejection of him as their rightful king. Look at verse 7 again of chapter 8. God said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. From being king over them. Samuel's upset because they've rejected his sons. His, the, you know, the line of his family is ending, but God says, Listen, no, it's not you there. They're rejecting me. Now, it was not the first time, he goes on to say in the very next verses. It's just the latest time. From the very beginning, God says, Days out of slavery in Egypt, Israel had forsaken the Lord and begun to serve other gods. That's verses eight and nine. And we're to see that that is just a picture of the human heart. This is sin. Milton's Satan captures it perfectly in Paradise Lost. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Who cares if my life is miserable as long as I'm in charge? That's the most important thing. Their request to be ruled by a king is tragically ironic. Because it is an attempt to be free from God's rule, but as we shall see, they will be Less free, not more free. They will be slaves, not to the Lord himself, but to earthly kings who will dominate and rule over them rather than serving the Lord. Our idols are harsh masters. And this is the misery of sin. Dick Lucas, preaching on uh, this chapter made a startling observation. It was a really a new idea for me that kind of caught me this week. He said that God's ideal, I think what's being revealed here, he said God's ideal was that the ruling prophet like Samuel, giving God's word to the people would rule the people. That was Samuel's role. He was ruling over Israel as this... As the scene begins, not as a king, but through the word of God as a prophet, a man hearing from God and bringing that word to the people so that the word itself would be what would rule over them and dictate and govern their behavior. So the people of God ruled by the word of God, not by men, not by kings with, you know, armaments and power. That was God's plan. That was how God would rule over his people as king, not through human kings, but through his word delivered to his people. It's how he would be with his people, through the prophetic office, bringing God's word to God's people. And it's an important reminder to us that we are to be ruled by God's word, not by any one person or board. Our book of church order, which governs the way we run our church, the very first words of that we call well, I won't tell you what we call it. It's, we, I shouldn't say that. It's this big, thick thing. It'll put you to sleep if you ever, or, you know, it can. It's, it's hard. It's dense. It's a lot. The very first words are the best words of everything that's said there, because here's how the book, telling your pastors and elders how they are to uh, exercise their authority over you, says this, Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, Right? And he rules over the church through his word. It's why our services are so saturated with the scriptures. We're not going to apologize for that. It's why we go to such great lengths to train people to read the Bible. Because this is what God intended for his people. The problem with their request was not that they wanted a king. It was their idolatry. And an idol is anything that you replace God with to feel strong and safe. It could be a relationship. You might look to somebody else's love. It could be money. Anything that, you, that becomes so important to you that you are not okay with just God and not also that thing. Anything that would lead you to a defect from God attitude as the source of your ultimate glory and confidence and joy and strength and peace. Any rather than God strategy, that's an idol. And what we learn about ourselves and seeing the way these people are operating here is God himself was not enough for them. He was not the king they wanted. They thought that they would be better off with kings like the other nations around them. And it is just ridiculous. Samuel says, This is ridiculous. But sin is ridiculous, it is irrational. It is ultimate folly. I mean, just a couple of things from my own life, okay, that I can just give you an insight into. To think that the day that I would make, if, of course, I could make days, is better than the day that the Lord has made, that I'm actually living, it's just silly. It's silly to think that, and yet you should see what happens to me when my schedule gets just the sl- just slightly derailed. You would think the world is coming to an end. Because I'm a control freak. It's an idol. To think that money in the bank can make me safe. When money doesn't cure cancer. Money can't keep my kids from rebellion or win them back. Money can't ensure happiness in my marriage. Money can't, can't buy happiness. Now I can buy you a boat and a truck to pull it, and a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. It's true. All of that, you know, it can buy you that, but not, that's a song, okay, if you don't know, like, like, you're like, where did that come from? But the most important things in life, see, if you make money, a rather than God strategy, you will never have enough to feel safe, to be happy. You always want and need more and more and more because that is the nature of idols. Now here, the particular particular idolatry is Political idolatry. We have to talk about that as well. The people wanted a king. They wanted a champion, somebody to fight their battles and make them feel safe. They felt as if they were at a disadvantage because they did not have a king like all of the nations that surrounded them. You see that in verse 19. And there are actually passages in God's law, in Deuteronomy 17, for example, if you want to look later, that spell out how Israel's kings were to act. So The irony here is that God had actually always allowed them to have kings. Of course, Deuteronomy was written before this particular scene. The monarchy then was not the problem. It was the people's trust in the monarchy that was the problem. It's the allure of the power of the political sphere that is the problem. Because with a king, they would shift their confidence off of God's name and onto the shoulders of some human person and ruler, and it would be a ruin. And Samuel warned them. He showed them where it would end in rather graphic detail in all of those verses that we read. But in verse 18, he says, you will cry out. Here's what's going to happen. You will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself and the Lord will not answer you. And if you're familiar with the story in the Old Testament, you know how prophetic that verse proved to be. It is the ultimate, I told you so. Because with few exceptions, the kings were an absolute disaster. They were an utter failure. Israel was no better off. It was far Worse because of this particular moment right here. What we have to understand is that in a post truth world, politics is religion. And a post truth world is one where there is no right and wrong, there's only power, and politics is the ultimate power. And it, so it doesn't matter whether you are right. Or virtuous or honorable all that matters is who's in power it becomes a zero-sum game of power people sell their souls to get and to keep power and that is our political landscape there was an article in the atlantic this week with the title what really happens when americans stop going to church two things caught my attention from that article one people are leaving church In the past 25 years, 40 million adult Americans who at one time went to church at least once a month now attend less than once per year. That shift is larger than the number of conversions during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. In the opposite direction. In a matter of about 20 years. And so people are leaving. You're aware of that. But the other thing is, is when people leave, you might expect that they would begin to drift toward more secular, liberal, pluralistic, you know, more left than right political leanings, because that's exactly what happened in Europe in the mid-20th century, but it is not what is happening in American society over the last 25 years. Clearly, those who already lean left, when they leave the church, they they go farther left. But those who already lean right when they're leaving the church, they're actually moving farther right. Which means when people leave the church, they take their politics with them to an even greater degree, which suggests that even before they left, they were being more profoundly shaped by their politics than they were by their faith. Politics is an easy idolatry. It's an easy idol, and one of the signs of idolatry is that you become dominated by fear, and this is why we respond to political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, the losing side you know, immediately, doesn't matter who, immediately begins to talk about leaving the country because they're so fearful of the future. They believe that if their policies and their people are not in power, we're doomed, and political candidates that don't share their views of whichever side they're on, they're not simply mistaken, They're evil. These are warning signs of this charged language and fear-mongering that we have fallen into idolatry because we, as people of faith, must always remember we have a king who fights for us. Now, more about him in just a minute. And so, we pray for earthly kings. And we submit to them, and we critique them. And we hold them to God's design but we dare not put our trust in them. Rejecting God's rightful claim on our hearts. Listen to this verse from Psalm 60. Can't get out of the Psalms. You guys know this. I've been talking a lot about this. Here's what Psalm 60, 11 and 12 says. Vain is the salvation of man, but with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who treads down our foes. And so that's the thing we have to remember. There's no king. But second, if they're is going to be a king and if a king is such a bad idea as clearly it appears that it is as the story goes on then why would God consent and why Saul and the answer is a really hard truth it's a really hard truth God gave the people exactly what they wanted not what they needed He gave them what they asked for, knowing how bad it would go. He told them so, verses 11 through 18, in the hope, he gave them what they asked for in the hope that they would eventually come to see just how wrong they were and cry out to him, which we're told in verse 18 that they will. Now, in many ways, here's what that means. It means that the consequence of our own political idolatry is this intense political polarization and all the fallout from it that we're experiencing, even among the church, even among people of faith. God often gives us what we ask for as an act of judgment. He gives us over to our own desires, removing his restraining hands. So C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and there are those who, to whom God says, thy will be done. And he goes on to say the second option is actually hell. Hell is Is the absence of God. Hell is the absolute freedom to choose whatever you desire without any divine interference. God is holding back, He's holding us back from our from the worst. I mean it's an incredible mercy the way He does. And any parent knows you can't give your kids everything they want. You have to say no, because kids are cute. they're kind of stupid i mean they're not wise yeah that got an amen (laughs) something's going on in that family there they lack they lack impulse control kids do adults do too a lot of the times but children are not able to deny themselves instant gratification for long long long-term good i saw i saw one uh somebody illustrating that like they said, uh, maybe a kid three or four years old, they said, here's $10,000, here's two Oreos. Which would you choose? And the kids like, the Oreos. Now, Tony Ellswick would probably make the same choice, but, but like, like, you know, like, that, like this idea that children are able to make decisions about their ultimate future is ludicrous. Because here's $10,000, here's two Oreos. I want the Oreos. And the parents like, this is $10,000. I don't care. I want the Oreos. So, you as the parent, you have to be the enemy. In my experience, is it, it doesn't always work. They sneak stuff by you somehow, no matter how hard you try. And when that happens, you can't keep your kids from the consequences of their choices. Sometimes, and I don't really know, I tried to think of, a, of, of an example of this, but I Sometimes you've even got to let them get what they think they want so that they can learn firsthand and not just because you told them that it's not what they want. There's a strong indication that Deuteronomy through 2 Samuel, that whole chunk of material was compiled by a single author, that it is a single literary work. And so there are themes woven throughout All of those books in the Old Testament that carry over from book to book. Now, to this point in the story, the author has been showing how the spiritual decline in the nation of Israel was due to them not having a king in Judges. For example, you come across the refrain over and over again, if you're familiar with that book, that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's how the book of Judges ends, the very last verse of the whole book with those words because it's the message of the book this was a bad thing that there was no king and it was just total moral chaos and anarchy there was there was a real problem as this scene dawned Samuel was old and his sons were corrupt verse 3 it says they perverted justice they used their power and their position to advantage themselves at the expense of the nation and there was no one to lead the people and so they were right to reject Samuel's sons as their leaders But they should have asked for a king who would rule justly, with wisdom, and lead them toward toward God's purposes for their nation as a holy people before the Lord. But instead, look there in verse 5, it says that they wanted a king, and then they expressed their intent and their desires to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king like the kings the other nations had, because later in verse 20, because we see they wanted to be like those other nations, and so God gave them Saul. And the text says, as you move into chapter 9, that he was tall and handsome and strong. There was an it factor to Saul. But very quickly, again, if you know the story, you learn that he was severely lacking in some other areas. Things like character and honor ugh, and all of the most important stuff. But that's not what Israel was looking for. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a winner. And this will be a theme in in 1 Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. We are often impressed by physical stature and charisma. God is much more interested in things like integrity and humility and wisdom, particularly for those who lead his people and lead the nations. Saul was physically impressive. But that alone does not make for a good king. And Samuel predicted that he would lead Israel to victory. But listen, winning isn't everything. (laughs) I remember years ago, uh, my team, uh, the Seminoles, had been going through a hard time. And we were on the rise. And then a report came out about some of the players on our team being arrested. I don't remember what for, but a friend uh, tongue-in-cheek texted me and said finally we're back to recruiting the caliber of athlete that it takes to win championships <laughs> and I found that so so funny because nobody wants a team full of good guys you want winners it doesn't matter what kind of people they are as long as they win but you see God's people were always to be different than the nations around them and their kings were supposed to be different too and that difference was even written In Israel's law, as I've said in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, there it says that the kings were not to build up their military like all the other kings. They were not to have a harem like other kings. They were not to amass wealth by oppressing the people like the other kings. Upon being crowned, it's fascinating what God does. He says the king, the first thing the king was supposed to do, his first act of office was to transcribe his own handwritten copy of God's law and then keep it with him and read it all the time. So that, it says there, he might learn to fear the Lord. See, the kings of Israel were to be shepherds above all, not warlords, the spiritual leaders of the nation. And Saul was no shepherd. We, can't, we couldn't read it all, but it goes on in chapter uh, 9. The text goes to show this to great length. Beginning in verse 3, there's a story about some lost donkeys. And Saul was sent out by his father to find him, and he proved to be not a very good shepherd. He failed And it's the narrator's way of foreshadowing the way Saul would fail to shepherd the nation. Saul would prove to be petty and power-hungry and paranoid. He was pragmatic, not principled. I'm running out of peas. He was corrupt and murderous and spiritually dangerous. But he would turn out to be exactly what they said they wanted. But they didn't know what they needed. You know, we should be different too. And one of the ways that we can be different is in our approach to politics in our own world, this new religion, and the amount of distance we keep and how much attention we give it and the standards that we hold people in public office to, especially those who claim to share our faith, and how we treat people who hold different views than our own. There's, there's overwhelming data That suggests, or excuse me, there's overwhelming data that Christians report feeling like they have more in common with people who share their politics but do not share their faith than they do with people who sincerely share their faith but do not share their politics. That is a symptom of political idolatry. God gave Israel a king, the kind of king they asked for, so that they would see the error of their ways and turn their hearts to the true king, the only one who is worthy of our love and trust. And listen, Saul was not it. It will become obvious very quickly, but neither was David even, the, 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 the hero of all of these stories, the man after God's own heart. The text, this text and every text is taking us by the hand to the one true king, Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb, the one And the only one worthy to be crowned king of our lives. And so if we could leave this text for just a minute and talk about in Revelation chapter 5, which we read not long ago as we're reading through Revelation, all of heaven is holding its breath. It's this really beautiful, captivating, kind of like tense scene. Heaven is holding its breath because no one can be found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now let me explain the imagery. The scroll represents the decrees of god the practical day-to-day government of god over the world there was no one in all of heaven and earth in all of human history in all the kings and presidents and leaders that have risen and fallen who was worthy of being trusted with executing god's purposes in the world you know what that means there is no political party that is on god's side against the forces of evil in the world There's no single platform that's synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. There's no presidential campaign that you should entrust your future to. It might be a matter of wisdom in choosing one, but don't entrust your future to it. That is heaven's judgment. The passage here in Samuel is so helpful because it's a reminder of the ways of all sinful, earthly kings and rulers. So look at verse 11 really quickly, and then we're going to come to a close. This will be the ways of the king who reign over you. This, This will be the ways of all of the kings who reign Beginning in verse 11, and here's what God says. Verse 11, he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take your property. Verse 15, he will take your wealth. Verse 16, he will take your livelihood. Verse 17, he will take your future. Do you sense a theme? In verse 17, it says, and you shall be his slaves. But this is what all idols do. They promise and they never deliver. They offer life, but they take more, they can get, more than they can give. And it is what all kings that we make into idols do. They take and take and take. They demand you serve them, your life for theirs. And in Revelation 5, as the search is being made, and there is no one who can be found worthy, there is no... King or ruler, in all of human, the span of all of human history, that is worthy of being entrusted with the government of God in the world. John begins to weep, and he's weeping. And then one of the elders, who's there around the throne, comes up to him and says, "John, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered." So he can open the scrolls and he can open its seals. And this of course is Jesus Christ who conquered not with the display of power, but through sacrificial love by living a life of true faith in God, free of idolatry, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead then raised back up into heaven in triumphal procession. And John looked toward the throne and there he saw the true king, the root of David, The Lion of Judah, and it says a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. This lion, who is also a lamb, fitted with horns, with immense power and authority, but also marked by the wounds of love. Jesus himself said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. All the idols that we serve, it's your life for theirs. But Jesus Christ is the one who's come and said, no, my life for yours. Samuel's sons took briberies and perverted justice. They used their will to power to advantage themselves at the expense of others. It's how all earthly kings use their power, but the true king, the Lord Jesus, he came not to take, but to give. Not with will to power, but with will to love, to disadvantage himself for the sake of others. Do you see him? Weep no more. And put your faith in him. And so what's the takeaway? The takeaway this morning is just this. It's a question. And it's a question we all have to answer. Is he worthy? And that's the answer. He is. Is he worthy of your exclusive loyalty and enthusiasm And trust, is he a better king than any other king that you can imagine crowning in your life? Is he worthy of all of that more than any other king or cause or movement? I'm going to let heaven answer for you. Listen to the hymn that heaven sings there in Revelation 5, and then we're going to sing, and we're going to sing this very thing. But here's what heaven says. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign with you on earth forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we confess that we are like these people here, that we, in the foolishness, in the insanity of our sin, that we would think that we would be safer with people in power who share our particular vision of the world and of the future than we would be with our, with our lives in the hands of the one who rules over all things despite the despots that might rule on the thrones of this earth. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the reprieves that you gave to your people throughout the, this, this material in, in Samuel and Kings. And we thank you for the, the reprieves of true good men and women who've risen up the ranks and ruled and reigned for the flourishing of your people and of the world. We give you thanks for them, but we, we ask you to keep us from giving our hearts to the proposition that there would be one who would come other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who would be worthy of all of our trust and loyalty, loyalty and enthusiasm that we would reserve that adoration and worship and trust for him alone and that the result would be that we would become a people truly fitted with the good news of Jesus Christ. Not of idols that take and take and take, but of a king who comes to give and give and give and in his and under his reign, to find the flourishing that we so desperately need. Lord Jesus, you are a good and faithful king. We worship you this morning. Holy Spirit, come even as we sing. Would you put these words in our hearts and let them explode from our lips as a, as a song of gratitude and response and thanks to you because indeed, you are worthy. And we sing it now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Is he, he indeed is worthy. And so let me be a friend to say to you, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the scripture says that this one who was God but made himself nothing, became obedient to death upon a cross, that God has raised Him up and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord in Christ. And so if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, confess with your mouth and bow your knee to him as king. But if you have, know that this one, who came to disadvantage himself, not to take, but to give, not to take from you, but to give to you, is now reigning in heaven. And he makes this promise to you that I send you out with now in this benediction. So go now as his people with this promise, spurring you on towards faith and love in all that you do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Thank you.